and welcome back to Season 2 of Legends of Read. My name is Joanne Sukumaran and I'm a bassoonist based in Singapore. I interview top double read musicians from around the world and I interview most of them over the internet via a teleconferencing software. Last summer, I had the great fortune of meeting a brilliant American always. His name is James Austin Smith. The beginning extract was from the Hiname Sonata for Oboe and Piano from the first movement. So let's get to that interview now. Welcome to the show, James. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Okay. James is an American oboist and he plays new and old music across the US and across the world. James is an artist of the Chamber Music Society of the Lincoln Center, the International Contemporary Ensemble, the co-principal oboist of the Orpheus Chamber Orchestra and artistic and executive director of Petulia, a chamber music series. So I know you come from a musical family. Um, maybe you could tell us uh, what instruments your family members play and uh, what led you to the oboe. Yeah, the music started, um, my family on my mother's side is Armenian and my grandfather was an amateur pianist. Um, and that sort of trickled down into my mother, who's a pianist, and my uncle, who's a violinist and uh, is a conductor. And um, it's not only on one side, because my dad is also a musician. Uh, he's a composer, and he plays the piano, and he um, runs music schools, and he conducts. So um, it's a very, uh, it's fertile ground, I'd say. Um, coming from my family. That having been said, I am the only one of my brothers who is a musician. The rest all do something totally different. So it's not a, uh, it's not a cult. <laughs> okay, that's, that's really nice to have a strong uh, family background in the industry. Um, and then while we were at BAMF, we were talking about the chamber music festivals. And I know that you are the artistic director of uh, Tertulia. Uh, in New York and San Francisco. Um, can you tell us um, how, how long uh, you have run this festival and how you came up with it in the first place? So Tertulia is in its ninth season in New York City and we're just starting our fifth season in San Francisco. And I joined the organization about five years ago. Um, it was founded by our wonderful founder, Julia Villagra, who is a tr musician by training, but works in finance uh, now and wanted a way to bring her friends who otherwise might not have known much about classical music into an environment where they could um, sort of access this music in a, in, a, in a way that was comfortable for them. And um, yeah, it, it provided a really wonderful atmosphere for the kind of music that um, we love so much. And so her her way of doing this was to put a concert into a great restaurant. And so at Tertulia, our main model is that we serve a three-course meal um, over the course of an evening. And in between the three courses of food, there are two courses of music. And... The key is that they're totally complementary, but they're completely separate. So that when you have, when you're having your meal, it's lively conversation, it's um, eating and drinking and chatting, just like you would in a restaurant. And then when it comes time for the concert, 
we turn the restaurant into, you know, sort of what we like to think of the, as the world's most intimate concert space. Um, and there's silence and there's no motion, there's no service. It's all just about the music. So there's no uh, clanging of knives and forks on plates. <laughs> no, it, there's also not, we don't want it to be, say, an orthodoxy either because the, the fact of the matter is that the, the music that we play, or let's say the type of music that we play, because we play music from all eras, including very contemporary, but um, chamber music itself was written for a space much closer to a restaurant than to a contemporary or modern concert hall. And so if there's, you know, if someone goes to pick up their glass of wine and it might clink against their plate or their silverware, it's really okay, you know, because that's the kind of atmosphere we're trying to create a serious listening experience in a casual environment. Hmm. So that's, that sounds really great because I always uh, picture writing programs like writing a menu for the restaurant. No? I always had this uh, imagery in my head. Uh, so what made you play so much chamber music? Uh, was there a particular moment in your studies that led you to focus on this? Or? Yeah, I think that when I was... Um... When I was first in, in undergraduate, I sort of thought I would do what most wind players, especially oboe players, but wind players do, which is, um, you know, finish and, and audition and hopefully play in a symphony orchestra. Mm -hmm. And the more, I, um, the more I experienced what that's like playing in an orchestra in school and in festivals, um, the more I realized it wasn't really for me. And... At the same time, I started to develop a real interest and passion for contemporary music. Um, and I started to really learn what chamber music is. I had the great fortune of going to the Yale School of Music for my graduate work, which has a real chamber music focus um, and uh, not just for strings and piano, but also for winds. And so I think that combination of factors um, led me into this wonderful world this sort of intimate, engaged world of chamber music that um, became pretty, pretty clear to me pretty quickly was how what I wanted to devote to, de to devote my life with my instrument and in music, um, too. Hmm. I see. So, um, what factors do you consider when you decide to book an artist or an ensemble for a festival, so to speak? So that we understand from the other side, no, of the process. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, for me, because sort of building on what I was just saying about chamber music, it's for me chamber music is the most intimate, the most communicative, um, has the most uh, is the most fertile for for connecting to audiences and to listeners. And partly that has to do with the scale, that it's so few musicians in such a small space. Um, and a Tertulia with only, let's say, 60 to 80 audience members. So it's a really very intimate environment. Mm -hmm. um, so to, that's the power of chamber music that uh, as I see it. And therefore, when I'm thinking about who I'd love to invite to come and play at Tertulia, um, you know, the baseline is sort of excellent, just like, fantastic music making, um, really 
serious and 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 personal and honest music making but just a, just just below that like really almost equal to that is an ability to connect with an audience and i don't mean necessarily when our artists are playing because we ask our artists to talk about the music that they're going to play to perhaps provide some kind of personal insight into what it was like to prepare it or what it's like working with your colleagues or what it's like performing in this space versus other spaces. Hmm. I'm very keenly aware that our audience is not a quote unquote traditional classical music audience. That doesn't mean that we're going to somehow dumb down the programming. It's just as rigorous as it would be anywhere else. But what it requires is that our audience, that our, that our artists have a fairly unique ability to connect with people who might not have a lot of experience connecting with classical music. So I'm, I'm, I'm looking for people who can bridge this gap, for artists who can bridge this gap um, that's so important today, as it really has always been, to connect our art form with people who um, otherwise have not discovered it yet. Yeah, yeah, I remember I was um, attending your seminar where you played a solo oboe piece and you gave several different introductions to the piece, right? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Yeah, so, but why is this so important? Shouldn't we just let the music speak for itself? And, no, I mean, coming from a very classical uh, viewpoint, I know. Yeah, no, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a great question. The, the issue here is that I tend to think of it, uh, let's say, like uh, a game like cricket. Mm -hmm. In the U.S., no one really knows what cricket is. And I have, I have English family members, my mom's English, and I don't know what cricket is. So... If someone were to plop me in front of a cricket game and say, here, watch for two hours, what I would get out of that cricket game would be really very, very little. And I'd mm -hmm. probably get pretty bored pretty quickly because I have no idea how it works. Mm -hmm. And so there is a sort of equivalency here where if you take someone who's had almost no musical background, let's say beyond sort of elementary music in, in elementary school, you know, in primary school, and plops them in front of a concert for two hours, I think their experience is probably similar to mine with cricket. Mm -hmm. And so just a, that kind of insight, a little bit of insight, a little bit of entryway into what mm -hmm. we're doing can mm -hmm. go a really long way in deepening the listening experience and perhaps um, uncovering a kind of love or a joy for something that you otherwise um, didn't really know about. Mm. So it's like giving them a guided uh, discovery you know, of a new world. Um, exactly. Something. And it doesn't necessarily need to be a particularly lengthy discussion or guide. You know, a, just mm -hmm. a few words can actually make a really big difference. And what we find at Tertulia, because we also have people in our audience who are sort of traditional concert goers, that when it's done well, they love it even more because they may know the piece already. They may have already heard the piece before, but 
they're looking and watching and listening to an artist who spent many, many hours with that piece of music, far longer than they have per se. I mean, the audience member. And so surely there must be some interesting insight that that artist can bring to their process, from their process, from their preparation that will illuminate the work more, even for the most traditional audience member. Mm. This is really interesting. I think we can even, uh, how do you say, increase the, uh, audiences, no, grow audiences in if we take this approach, you know, rather than this staying is in. Exactly yeah. right, yeah. and yeah. it's exactly the point of tertulia. Um, and I always think back to 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 my um, <laughs> I always think back to my youth orchestra conductor in Boston, Massachusetts, Benjamin Zander, and he always used to say, "Everyone loves classical music. Most people just don't know it yet." <laughs> okay. <laughs> we have to give people an opportunity to discover the love that they have for classical music. And um, there's lots of different ways to do it. And hopefully, Tertulia is one way that's um, contributing to that. I see. Oh, that's, that's a really good uh, insight. It, it gives me a lot of uh, ideas right now. So, the next, <laughs> the next question is. Um, um, something on interpretation. Um, so as a classical musician, you know, sometimes you're expected to play the same repertoire multiple times. Um, how do you keep a piece fresh, you know, in terms of uh, interpretation? I mean, is there some way that you, like, one can stay in love with it? For example, the Mozart or the Strauss, you know, concerto. I'll, I'll, I'll admit to you, as a a classical chamber music oboist <laughs> the piece that i have played more than any other piece by a factor of probably a hundred is the mozart oboe quartet oh and so i understand your question very clearly um because i experienced this i play the mozart quartet probably five to fifteen times a year wow um, <laughs> okay <laughs> and what I will say about keeping an interpretation fresh is that, um, first of all, it makes it so important that the material is 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 a material of genius, and that the the, the quartet by Mozart is fantastic. So there's no lack of inspiration within the material, let's say, but there are other points of um, inspiration beyond just the material. There are it, the fact that I'm always playing it with different string player colleagues. So every, every colleague is bringing a new or at least a personal interpretation of the work. And, you know, I'm very often hearing a comment from a colleague about, you know, a harmony here or a phrasing there or an articulation there and thinking, I've never thought about that before. So that's a huge source of inspiration. And then finally, there's the environment. And in the environment, I mean the concert hall. I mean the audience. Um, there's a sort of different energy to every Mozart quartet. So, for example, um, for the number of times that I've played that work in a traditional concert hall, in August, I was at a, an amazing art center in the on a ranch in Montana called the Tippet Rise Art Center, where we went up to an elevation of about seven thousand feet, 
and underneath an enormous outdoor sculpture played the Mozart Oboe Quartet. Oh. <laughs> There's no... <laughs> <laughs> the, 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 that was that was you know that might as well have been the first time I ever played the Mozart <laughs> Quartet. If that makes sense. Okay. Ah. So so fortunately, um, I, I think it's you know I think it's about looking at the material itself, and it's also about looking at all of the things around you, from which you can draw draw inspiration. So also zooming out, you mean like in a way? Yeah, or or just taking into account that it's. It's not just about the notes that are on the page. It's about so much more than that. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. I, I know that you also studied uh, political science at the uh, university, right? So you, you have quite a wide uh, range of interests. Um, what other things inspire you or, or drives you artistically? Do you mind sharing with us? I find... Um, like, I think it's so important for us that we have other interests and that we do other things. And by which I mean, you know, hobbies, but other ways to spend our time than, say, practicing or making reads or, you know, listening to music. And for me, um, politics has always been incredibly interesting to me. Uh, so I, from a young age, was like, just a, uh, an avid newspaper reader, and I still read the newspaper all the time. Um, I really like uh, magazines, all that kind of like insight into what's going on in the world um, and why, which are particularly curious questions um, in this day and age. But beyond that, um, I take a lot of inspiration from the other arts. I'm really into architecture, um, visual art, uh, those are my two biggest ones in terms of other performing arts. I mean, the opera that, that gets a little close to, to music, let's say it is music, obviously. So, but ballet, um, so really taking the time to explore sort of other artistically, it, there's, there's an amazing, mm -hmm. you know, I find some of my most inspiring experiences are going to art galleries or going to exhibitions because mm -hmm. they somehow end up influencing my music making. And I don't mean that in some kind of abstract way. I mean, I might see um, the way an, an exhibition is constructed or the flow of an exhibition and think, how can I apply that to my programming? Or, mm. you know, the, the environment of a gallery, how could this translate into something we do for Tertulia in terms of, you know, the audience experience. So I, it's not just about sort of like, what I'm not trying to, what I'm trying to say is it's not about how does this piece of art, uh, you know, influence my playing of Bach. It's not quite that straightforward. It's a bit more, um, yeah, on a larger scale, like living sort of a life. Yeah, having a life outside of the practice room, is it? Is that it? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, but then, then on the other side, because sometimes I also experience like practice guilt, right? You don't, you don't feel like you're <laughs> practicing enough, right? <laughs> so, but I think, I think that uh, what you say, right? Getting out of the practice room actually gives you more inspiration, no? I think. And uh, yeah. Hmm. Absolutely. It, yeah, Absolutely. it's really food for thought, I think, yeah. So I have a question now. Uh, I think this is for maybe oboists who might be listening in. 
um, maybe you can share with us uh, on your gear what, what kind of uh, what rich brand of oboes do you play on because you have such a unique and warm sound oh thanks um, <laughs> I know I love I love my instruments um, they're made by Gebrudo Minnick which is a firm in the eastern part of Germany it was a lot of lot of history um, and uh yeah i those those all three of my instruments the my oboe my oboe d'amore and my english horn are all made by menig and menig has um like a couple of other oboe makers has been experimenting with making instruments out of maple and so oh. my um oboe and my oboe d'amore are both made out of maple which um gives them first at first they're totally beautiful because they're they're it's a lovely blonde colored wood um mm. but that's not really the point i remember it was so it was so pretty <laughs> <laughs> no it gets a lot of comments yeah. um but uh the point is that maple is much much lighter than grenadilla and so from a comfort standpoint it's really a lovely instrument to play because it feels somehow the, the reduction in weight sort of adds lends to a kind of additional freedom of playing and that freedom is reinforced by the fact that the maple is less dense than the grenadilla so the thing vibrates underneath your fingers like you've never really experienced before wow and that feeling <laughs> as we know as wind players as double reed players it's all about vibration right that's, that's yeah. the whole point <laughs> Yeah, and so when you can feel that underneath your fingers in a really, in a really um, sort of, you know, a, a very real way, it's a, it's an incredible feeling to play, to play on. So um, I'm a little bit addicted to my, to my maple menig, I must say, and um, yeah, I just am also just grateful for how well made they are because I. Oof, I take it in once a year just to get kind of a little checkup, but nothing ever goes wrong with the instruments. It's really a very reliable experience, which I'm grateful for. Mm -hmm. I see. Yeah, because um, I think that, um, yeah, it's, it's really great to to have uh, worked with you in Bound because I see that um, that many of the faculty members have very varied careers. Uh, everyone has a slight different portfolio. Uh, for you, you're doing not only the chamber music, but also contemporary music and uh, running your own series. So, um, what do you think uh, lies uh, ahead for like classical musicians? Do you think there are a lot more possibilities today? Or? I think that, I think that what lies ahead is is sort of in the in in the brain of 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 what the player can conceive. I think mm. that it's all about thinking critically about what why we're doing what we're doing, why we're playing our instruments, mm -hmm. what kind of impact that can have on the communities around us, mm -hmm. and really asking ourselves how are we relevant to what's happening around us? How mm -hmm. can we how can we make the art form that we are practicing relevant to people who are otherwise living very, uh, very busy lives and might not be um, 
looking toward what we're doing. So mm-hmm. I think it takes a it takes a kind of engagement if we really want to kind of further this project of music, this project mm-hmm. of classical music, it takes an engagement that we are perhaps not really made aware of when we're studying, certainly not in, in school days and maybe increasingly in conservatory, but um, you know, it's a, it's a kind of mission that we all need to understand it comes with the endeavor. It comes with playing the instrument. So we have to come out of our practice caves a bit more, no? <laughs> yes, please. I mean, don't, don't get me wrong. The, the, the mission is, the, 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 the most crucial ingredient to the mission is okay. the excellence in performance. So yeah. what I don't mean to say is put down your instruments and start thinking about how to you know, bring classical music to the world. It's once, you've, once you're done practicing for the day, then we'll uh, after 6 p.m. then uh, okay <laughs> <It's all right>. <laughs> <laughs> and that's much easier to do with a glass of wine than practicing it so i'll tell you that yeah okay <laughs> what, what have you um had some mentors that helped you or what has been the biggest advice you have received in your career oh i you know i have there's so many people and that's the other thing just really um learning from mentors, learning from colleagues, uh, learning from teachers. It's so to have the openness to just, to just listen and, um, and consider what people are, are telling you um, is so important and feedback and criticism and soliciting feedback about all the things you're doing. Um, I think that, you know, I've gotten a lot of great advice. One piece of advice that was given to me right after grad school, when I, you know, it's a, it's a period when you're starting your career and I have my own students now are in this, in this place where you think you need to be doing a thousand things to really somehow make something of yourself. And, and it's true, you do need to be proactive. But one of, my, one of my professors in grad school told me to simply keep doing what I'm doing, oh. which I have to say was infuriating at the time because I thought that's not a piece of advice, <laughs> but there, there is a certain brilliance in, in the idea that if you have a strong work ethic and if you have some kind of vision, even if that vision is going to change and it will change a hundred times, um, that you simply keep practicing, keep thinking, keep working, keep, keep coming up with ideas, keep, um, meeting new colleagues, going to concerts, uh, going to exhibitions, going to see new buildings, going to, you know, simply enriching your life. Um, if you have that work ethic and if you have the sort of musical brilliance or the sort of interpretational understanding of what you're trying to do with your music, like things will follow. Mm. And I sort of still take that approach in my own life now. You know, if you ask me, oh, where are you going to be in 10 years? What are you going to be doing in 10 years? I will tell you I have no idea. Um, And I don't really want to know. Because, you know, the more that you put into, the more inputs you put into this kind of life and career, the more varied the results are going to be as you move along. Um, Mm. I see. 
Yeah, but it seems sometimes endless. Yeah, you have to engage people on social media. You have to sell tickets. You have to practice. You have to get fans, and so sometimes I feel a bit oh, overwhelmed. Yeah, well. yeah you have, need. Yeah, yeah. You need a lot of coffee. You do. <laughs> yeah, and then no, I mean it is. Yeah. And it's important, you know, of course, it's also important to take, take time off for yourself, too, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I certainly try and do that. And, you know, it's, that's really important, both both from, like, your sort of career and from your instrument. Those are yeah. super valuable. Um, so I don't mean to make it seem like it's just an endless task. Um, but, you know, I have to say, if it is a lot of work. And if you find that you enjoy that work, it means you're doing the right thing. You're in the right field, you know? Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Because it's a big, it's a big task. We have a big task ahead of us to, to, to sort of share what we do with larger audiences um, and to maybe move the dial in terms of how innovative we're thinking and um, what kind of repertoire we're, we're creating. It's, it's, um, it's a big task, but it's really fun. Yeah, and I think that the, since now the media has changed, the traditional gatekeepers are, I mean, they're still there, but uh, I think mm-hmm. we can still take our career in our hands. You know? We don't need like to be signed by a record company or, yeah. I, Absolutely. Of, yeah, because of the disruption in the media. No? Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So I've come to my last question. Um, I mean, this was really great insights. Uh, just wondering uh, when you have uh, free time, do you have any uh, unusual hobbies or what do you like to do when you have time off? <laughs> <laughs> I like the idea of an unusual hobby. I can't say I have <laughs> unusual hobbies. Well, no, I do. No, I, so no, I, I do. Um, I, I'm a total coffee freak. And so I'll often seek out coffee places that I've never been to before. Um, and especially when I'm traveling, that's a really big part of my travels. Yeah. Um, but it extends also to food and, and cooking. I really like cooking. Um, and I like wine. And um, yeah, I just, it's also, you know, sometimes the, the hobby, the how well, I guess there's one other hobby I have, which is um, I really like working out and weightlifting. Um, ah, I didn't know that. Oh, it's, okay. <laughs> it's, uh, it's something that I wasn't a part of my life until maybe the last few years. And now, I don't know, I just find it fun. And it's good to put yourself in a totally different place. So, you know, a gym is certainly a different place from a music school or a practice room. Um, and uh, yeah, so that's a, those are some of the ways that I spend time when I'm not trying to somehow, I don't know. Uh, make I reads. see. <laughs> no, no, because I, I once read about a violinist that keeps, uh, I think, lizards or geckos or something. Yeah. Ah. That's why, <laughs> that's why yeah, I asked about unusual hobbies. <laughs> I was going to say, it's never too late to, de- to develop unusual hobbies. So. <laughs> Thanks a lot for your time. I think uh, we've uh, talked about a lot of interesting topics today. Ah, I have one last one. Last, last, last one. <laughs> <laughs> Before I let you go, what would be your dream program, let's say for a festival? 
if you had no restrictions on budget and uh, repertoire and so on? Oh, man. Yes. <laughs> I don't, you know, well, of course, your mind goes this with this. So many, <laughs> so many things, right? Yeah. Um, my mind goes to things that are really hard to program because they're really they're like sort of big and have weird instrumentation and would cost a lot of money. But a piece like George Crumb's ancient voices of children would be so cool, but you've got to have a mandolin and a boy soprano. And it's like, there's a lot happening there, but that's really cool. I'd also love to find a really amazing way to program Piero Lunaire of Schoenberg, like a really, oh. like, I don't know if it would be a Tertullia, but I mean, but, but these are just examples of so many pieces that are so, so they're so full of possibility for audience members. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, maybe that maybe my maybe it's always look with programming. Your dream program is the next program that you're working on. It's That's true. That's true. On. Or the next album, yeah. <laughs> Exactly. It's got to yeah. be because you can never, you can never sort of go, go half on those things. You have to go full. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty exciting <laughs> to, to, to dream of all these programs, actually. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Now we really come to the end. Thanks so much for your time, James. <laughs> Thank you, Joanne. Total pleasure.